In today's episode, we open our Bibles to a new book, the book of Esther, chapter 1. The book of Esther is the second of only two books in the Bible named for women. It tells the story of a young Jewish woman named Esther who becomes the queen of Persia and uses her position to save her people from extermination. Notably, nowhere in the book is God mentioned, and yet we see his handiwork behind the scenes, shaping history and working good for his people. Good morning and blessed Epiphany Tide. Today is Thursday, January 26th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their publishing and translating work at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning to uh, kick off our study of Esther, please join me in welcoming the Reverend Thomas Exxon, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Good morning, Pastor Eckstein. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming on and helping us with Esther. How have you been doing? Oh, doing very well. Um, uh, looking forward to getting into uh, the book of Esther. And uh, a few little comments on it before we dive in. Uh, you had mentioned in your introduction that Esther is uh, the one book of the Bible where, where God and his name is not uh, directly mentioned. Um, and at first that might might make people think, wow, well, why is that in the Bible then? But, but you have to remember this is dealing with uh, God's salvation history, uh, God's people, and, and the fact that, that in the other scriptures, uh, we clearly see that God had promised to work through the seed of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, to bring the Savior of all nations into the world. So, so even though God isn't directly mentioned in this book, uh, we, he is there behind the scenes, guiding all of history, all the events that we see here. And 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 that's uh, helpful to us uh, when we think about how to look at life in our day. You know, there, there might be a lot of people who, who don't even believe there is a God or they don't acknowledge the one true God at all, and yet that doesn't change the fact that God is working through them to accomplish his purposes. And so we're going to see uh, God working through people in the book of Esther, people that do not even acknowledge him, and yet he's working through them to, to accomplish his purposes. And of course, as far as the historical setting of all this, um, uh, this happens, uh, obviously, uh, uh, several years after the Babylonian exile, but at this point, the the, the um, empire of Babylon has been taken over by the kingdom of Persia, which is now ruling a, a vast uh, a majority of the region uh, uh, of that area, including uh, the Holy Land. And uh, and yet we're going to see that that uh, even though a plot emerges, which you'll get to later in Esther, uh, to to uh, destroy God's people, uh, God works uh, through Esther and uh, the the Persian king to actually turn things around and uh, end up uh, uh, rescuing God's people from uh, the evil plot that unbelievers had against them. So uh, it, it's during this time when the Persians. Uh, are, are ruling after the Babylonian exile that this whole thing takes place. Right. So there is a return of uh, Jews to Judah from Babylon uh, right around 538 BC. And then a, a second group is led back by Ezra in 458. And from what I understand, the events of this text are happening kind of in between. So it also gives right. us a little insight, because we think often of the Jews who went back, but this gives us a little insight into the Jews that were still there. And I love how you said, because God is working, he's still working through his people. He's keeping his promises. And even if they're not, even if God's not on their lips, we know that God is using them for his purposes. Yeah, that's such an important thing for us to remember. Yeah, and you're gonna when you start reading the first nine verses, we're gonna see that the 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 king uh, Ahasuerus is in a city called Susa, uh, where, where you know the, the main characters uh, uh, like Mordecai and Haman and Esther they're, they're living, and uh, for, just so people can get a general idea, they can look on a, a a map of the Bible in their study Bible or something. But Susa is is just somewhat northeast, about 200 miles of the actual city of Babylon. So that's where, where Susa is uh, in relationship to things geogra uh, uh, you know, geographically. And, uh, and basically that, that ends up being the, the historical setting for, for all of this at this point. 
Well, I'll tell you what, before I read those first few verses, would you like to start our time together in prayer? Absolutely. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and uh, we're about to look at uh, one of the books of your Holy Scriptures that that clearly teach us that behind all the events in the secular world, uh, even among people who don't acknowledge your name, you are still at work uh, for the sake of your people, your elect. And so, Lord, as we we go through this uh, book over the coming uh, days, uh, help us to remember that that you are still uh, the one who is in control of the universe and guiding history. And so when when we as Christians face dark times, when we uh, are tempted to wonder if you've forsaken us, help us to remember that you are working in all things uh, for the good of those uh, who love you and have been called according to your purpose. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we will be reading Esther from the uh, English Standard Version, starting with chapter 1, verse 1, but just the first nine verses so far. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods, and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble and mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. All right, so we'll end there. I think a good place to start, though, is to let the people know that uh, King Ahasuerus, which is a little harder to say than his Greek name, King Xerxes. Right, this is Xerxes, Leonidas, you know, the... The uh, the spar this is Sparta folks right that's that's kind of who we're dealing with here uh, and and Xerxes or Ahasuerus is super powerful and super wealthy as this as this passage demonstrates. You know, in fact, as you were reading that, I was thinking, boy, I wish I had attended that party. <laughs> no kidding, right? Yeah, really. Uh, you know, this is a good example of how the kings back then, um, I mean, uh, you know, if, if the president of the United States tried to do something like this, he probably wouldn't get away with it, you know? No, like, where, where do but, all these golden cups come from? We need a, a Senate investigation. Right, exactly. Uh, but this was common among the kings of those days. In fact, you know, uh, we don't want to get sidetracked with this, but we, we think about how King Solomon, Oh my, you know, he, he, he flaunted his royalty big time. And, and we see King Xerxes or Hasuerus doing the same thing here. Well, and you know, I, I'm looking online at a couple of resources and they show these cups and um, bowls that they actually have, like in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and other places of these Persian goblets and bowls, which are made of gold. And, and, and I guess it demonstrates their not just their like wealth, but their like command of worldly goods. It's a demonstration of their power, and right. I and he's certainly extremely powerful. And I also understand from what I've read that these hundred and eighty days, it's kind of like a it's kind of like a working a, a working festival. You know, it's a, it's a half a year here where everybody and he's planning probably some some. Uh, some big uh, military movements and other things. So you have all of these different important people in town as they spend half a year preparing. But then as we pointed out, there's this week long festival and they just let loose. Uh, And uh, yeah, certainly, certainly an amazing, amazing thing to think about. Yes. And you know, as we read about this, 
Yeah, you know, again, earlier we talked about how God is behind the scenes. And and this is just a reminder to us how, you know, uh, uh, many, many powerful men in history, you know, they, they almost think of themselves as gods, you know, and, 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 and when they, they live such lavish lifestyles, as you said, it's a way of letting everybody know, hey, I have the power, uh, I, I'm in control, you know, uh, and yet, uh, we we know from the wider context of Esther, the wider context of salvation history in the Bible, you know, King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, he's really a, a, a flea, uh, you know, on, 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 a, you know, on, a, on a mouse co- co- compared to the real king of the universe. Um, you know, so it's ironic, you know, we, we have this king who's saying, look at my greatness, my vastness. And yet, what is he compared to the creator of the universe? Nothing. Well, and when I was reading too, you know, it hasn't been too long, just a couple of weeks, and we were toward the end of Exodus where God had given instructions to Moses on how to build the tabernacle and the courtyard yes. and, and how he's putting it all together. And what do you hear? Fine twined linen and, and violet and, you know, blue yarns and gold and silver And so God has taken the wealth of the Egyptians, repurposed it to glorify his own name and to make a presence among his people. Yeah. And then you look at here and just what you said come to my mind, too. What do we have here? Cords of fine linen, cotton curtains, violet hangings, couches of gold and silver. You're absolutely right. They saw themselves as gods. And boy, were they wrong. And, you know, I can't help but think how, you know, uh, obviously many of God's own people are still, you know, living uh, in this region as a result of the exile that had happened decades before. And they're probably thinking when they see all this beautiful stuff, they're probably thinking, oh, remember what the temple looked like when we had it. You know, we lost all of that. Why? Because of our sin. But but then then God's promise. I will bring you back. And we know that in this historical setting, God has already been working through Xerxes, Ahasuerus, to bring God's people back and resume the building of the temple. So, you know, when we when they see all these wonderful, uh, you know, uh, uh, ornate uh, uh, decorations uh, in, in the palace here in Susa, they can remember, well, wait a minute, but God is keeping his promise. We're rebuilding the temple again. Uh, we'll be able to, to, to honor God with the same luxury decorations eventually and so you know i can't help but think that god's people have that on their mind as they see all this well and this is just speculation on my part but i'm also thinking i wonder if they think they'll be hauling some of this off like like they did in egypt uh, like their ancestors had done in egypt you know maybe maybe they thought well when we're finally free we're gonna we're gonna be taking a bunch of this stuff with us uh, although that's certainly not what came to came to pass. But we, we also have here, you know, 127 provinces. And there are some people, some critics who will say, well, this doesn't make any sense because in Daniel chapter six, it talks about 120 satraps. So surely there's some biblical error here uh, because, you know, here it is 127. Um, And I just brought that up just in case that's something our listeners have come across. Uh, The idea here is this is happening at different times in history between Daniel and what's happening here. Uh, Things certainly change in terms of empires and people who are in charge of various sections of an empire. Uh, But I just bring that up because, well, I think it's worth noting because there are some critics who look at little things like that and say, well, here, here, here is a, a contradiction in the scriptures. But that's certainly not the case. Right. And, and, you know, not only do you have to look at the, the, the historical setting and then differences that can happen, you know, uh, just over a couple decades, but also there are times we, we know that the Bible simply, um, they're, they're giving us, in some situations, they give us approximations and not exact numbers. And so uh, that doesn't mean, we even do that in, in our own you know, uh, lives. Uh, when, when people ask us, you know, well, how much money did you spend on that house? We, we might not tell them down to the very penny. We might not even tell them the exact dollar amount. We just might give them an approximation. And, uh, you know, we see that happening sometimes in the Bible too. So, right. And another place where we see some critics is, you know, we have this idea of the 180 days and some people take from this, that there was basically a hundred and, um, 80 days of just festivities and and they'll actually say that this is an example of why this would be a fictional 
uh, a fictional book. But we would counter that with saying, well, there really is no reason to think that. We, I think it's pretty clear that there was certainly a lavish festival for uh, at least a week. But the reason why I brought up the hundred days of sort of like a, a working conference over those that t- of that time is because he's also busy putting down revolts. We see extra biblical information where in 484, he puts down two revolts and it makes sense that he would then celebrate these victories with a feast. And he's also at this time preparing for a huge campaign against Greece. So this six month period might've been time for him to convince these other leaders to support him, maybe even uh, some, you know, strategic planning amongst them. Well, uh, Basically, the one other thing that this is uh, uh, at the very end of verse nine, uh, we have mention of Queen Vashti, uh, who's also giving a feast for the women in the palace that belong to the king. And uh, as we read on the next verses, uh, uh, the reason uh, she's mentioned now is that she becomes quite a key figure here in the rest of chapter one. And one thing I want to mention before you read verses 10 and following of chapter one, uh, I wanted to mention this uh, uh, because uh, I think it's so important for us, especially skeptics who like to look at the Bible and and nitpick, but it's important that we distinguish between what is called descriptive texts of scripture and prescriptive texts of scripture. And and what I mean by that is uh, a prescriptive text is where God clearly says, this is my will from you. This is what I want you to believe. And this is what I want you to do or how I want you to live. But then there are parts of the Bible that are simply descriptive. They're simply describing what people did, what people taught, various events. But these things are not necessarily God's will. They might even be contrary to God's will when you look at these things in light of the wider context of Scripture. And the reason I say that is we're about to get into a part of Esther where it's descriptive of what the king thinks about how women ought to behave. (laughs) <laughs> and I can see skeptics looking at this and going, oh, this is a classic example of how the Bible is just a male chauvinist book, and it, it puts down women, and it thinks you know, men should have all the control. Well, no, nowhere here is it saying, thus saith the Lord. This is how women ought to be viewed or treated. What, what we have here is simply a description of what happened in history and the, the attitude of, of, of the king and, and how this leads to the other events that end up taking place in Esther. I think that's a fair warning before we go forward, and let's do that. Let's go ahead and read verses 10 through the rest of the chapter, which is through verse 22. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs, and at this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, Mimukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mimukin said, in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, 
All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. All right. Whew. So, we have him. First of all, he's already made a point of bringing out the fine foods, the wines, the golden couches, and he's probably sitting there thinking, what else beautiful do I have command of that I can show off to all these people? And he's drunk. It says uh, his heart was what gladdened with wine or something like that. So he's drunk and he says, I know I'll, I'll make my wife, the queen parade, dance, do something which she obviously sees as inappropriate to show off her to these people. Yeah. And she's not having it. Is she? No, no. And, and um, now here's a good example. That's why I wanted to go into all of this about difference between prescriptive and descriptive text. You know, I, I could see some skeptics looking at, at this and saying, ah, oh, see, uh, the, the, this is what the Bible uh, says, uh, uh, how men should treat women. Women are just objects. And of course, th this is not uh, saying that this is God's will for how men ought to treat women. This is simply descriptive of what a pagan king did in his prideful, drunken stupor. You know, uh, he he obviously thought of his wife as as one of his treasures, one of his pieces of of exquisite property, and and now he wants to use her to uh, again bolster his pride. Uh, but like you said. She isn't having it. Uh, she doesn't want to, uh, you know, uh, bend to his wishes and and be treated like an object. And uh, as we see that this results in some embarrassment for the king. Yeah, this isn't God's will. It's King Ahasuerus's will. He's the one who makes this decree. And I think we'll note, too, that she refuses this. And while the Bible is quoting the you know advisors to the king about how all oh, this will cause all women to basically refuse to obey their husbands that's not god's quote he's as you said describing what's happening and we also and and while we have to admit that the author is primarily concerned with getting us to queen esther or esther um we still told this story and we're never told anywhere that she has done wrong by not listening to her husband right. the king so, I mean, that that's also important. You know, there's there's a silence there. The Bible doesn't condemn her for what she does or, or doesn't do in this case. Absolutely. In fact, it's interesting. Not only does it say nothing bad against Vashti's decision to not, you know, be flaunted and treated as an object, but later on, as we're going to see in coming weeks, you know, God works through none other than a woman uh, to accomplish great things for his people. So, so far from the Bible being a male chauvinist book and, 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 and demeaning women, uh, and even in the old Testament, we, we see how in Israel, uh, women are exalted. Women can be tools to do great things, uh, for God. And, uh, and of course in the new Testament, we see the same thing. And, uh, uh if anything, uh, the new Testament teaches that far from men treating women like objects, uh, you know, what does Paul say? you know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So uh, if anything, we know from the wider narrative of scripture that if anybody was in the wrong, it was uh, King Ahasuerus uh, that that was uh, a sinning by his prideful uh, choices. A hundred percent. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll ponder those thoughts as we take just a few moments for a break. Folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, uh, Pastor and I will keep going with our look at Esther chapter 1. So, we'll see you on the other side. On America's college campuses, doors are open to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The number of international students studying at American schools has more than quadrupled over the past decade. For many of these young men and women, it's their first time living in a free society where they can ask questions about Christianity. You can help answer their questions. Go to lhfmissions.org and partner with the Lutheran Heritage Foundation to translate good Lutheran books into languages these students can read and understand. lhfmissions.org Well, 
Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Thomas Eckstein, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Folks, I love hearing from you. It's such an encouragement when you write in to share with me how Thy Strong Word is a part of your devotional life. So if you'd like to reach out, just want to say hello, or maybe you have a question, feel free to email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook and send me a message there. Thank you so much for listening and telling others about Thy Strong Word. On the air, on demand at kfuo.org forward slash Thy Strong Word, or even through your favorite podcasting app. Well, uh, Pastor Eckstein, before the break, we were talking about how the Bible really uplifts women, and in and over time, the Bible, and Christians especially, were really the first in the culture to present and and push for this biblical idea that women were of equal value to men. Uh, and that's that's the message of the scriptures. Even in Rome, when women were starting to get more societal and uh, political, so to speak, power, you know, the church was preceded that by talking about the equal value of women. Now you rewind and you think, well, the Old Testament's going to be filled of a lot of women being oppressed and well, that might be true, but in this case, we see an example of a king who is not very nice to his wife, uh, the queen. He asks her to do something that she's not comfortable with. She refuses. There is a consequence for her because everybody flips out, but the consequence isn't from God. It's from this sinful human man. Um, and then you said, of course, coming up, though, God's going to do great things through his next queen. So in a way, it's like he's trying to get rid of a problem, and God fills that gap with Esther, who is certainly going to uh, uh, also be a very strong, formidable character. Yes. And, you know, uh, even though uh, the, the way Osuerus thinks of his wife as just, well, she's a uh, my property, uh, an object, um, something I can use to just, uh, uh, you know, flaunt my, my great power and prestige. Um, very likely, uh, he thinks of the other women It's even Esther in the same way. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to, uh, use her for my own purposes, but little does he know, uh, that God is going to be working through all this. Uh, for the sake of his people, and ultimately for the sake of 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 bring keeping his promise that the savior of all nations, uh, including uh, the pagans that were living in in uh, the the Persian Empire at this time, you know, God's going to work through his people to bring the savior of all nations into the world. And so, th- there's so much more going on behind the scenes here than just the petty uh, pride of, of of the king. Right. I mean, this is really just setting the scene for God to do his amazing work. And I think that brings us back to something you said at the beginning, which is that even if God's name is not on the lips of people as they go about their lives, doesn't mean God's not either with them or working through them. And so even with unbelieving pagan kings or rulers or officials, you know, they may be doing something that we look at and go, oh, that's just sinful. But really, God uses his sinful actions here to open the door to save the people of Israel. Absolutely. And and one thing I wanted to mention, because, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, bring a spoiler in here, but I think most people know how Esther ends. You know, even though ultimately the book of Esther ends with victory for God's people, victory over their enemies, um, one thing we learn from the wider narrative of Scripture is, is that even though God's people do ultimately have the victory, I mean, you know, what do we say every Sunday? We look forward to the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. You know, so all Ultimately, we, we share in that eternal victory that we have in Christ. But that doesn't mean that this side of heaven, uh, things always go our way as far as being God's people. Uh, even though the book of Esther ends with great victory for God's people, uh, there are other times in the history of the Old Testament and then even in the New Testament as the Christian church begins to grow and spread, there are times when God's people suffer greatly. Um, you think in the first couple centuries of the Christian church where where many Christians were martyred for their faith, and they may have been tempted to think, well, has God abandoned us? You know, has God forsaken us? Uh, but then we, we have to remember, no, uh, behind the scenes, even 
during our times of despair and suffering and persecution. God is still at work, and, and we have that certain hope and certain victory in Jesus, even in the face of death itself. And that's why when I, when I, when I was reading through the book of Esther in preparation for this, I was thinking of, of uh, part of Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about, you know, some of God's people had these great victories, they conquered their enemies, you know, and, and you think of, of how Esther ends in that light. But then Hebrews 11 goes on and says, however, there were others who were killed and tortured and sawed in two and martyred. Uh, and, and yet it says, even, even though they suffered greatly, they still shared in the ultimate victory we have that has been fulfilled in Christ. And, and so we need to remember that, that um, uh, the way the book of Esther ends doesn't mean that this side of heaven, we Christians are always going to have uh, the upper hand in this world. What it does mean is that we share in the eternal victory that we have in Christ that is sure and certain, even if we have to face martyrdom and death in this world. Yeah, something so important to remember because, you know, God doesn't promise us this just sort of carefree, beautiful life, but we, we, we struggle against sin and Satan and we struggle against the powers of this world, uh, but God is in control. I want to take a step back. Um, we kind of glossed over it, but going back to, uh, let's see, I would say verse uh, 6, 7, and 8, right when they're having this party and we're getting this description of the finely woven linen and blue cloth. Uh, these are the royal colors of Persia. And I thought that was uh, worth noting that they're not just expensive cloths, but he's showing off, you know, his, his pride in, in his kingdom. Um, but, uh, and this is really just for amusement, but in the resources that I have, verse eight, it says something very strange. It says, and drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And I suppose there's some questions about what that exactly means. Like, what does it mean that there is no compulsion? Like, he's not forcing them to drink? Um, I don't know if you looked that up. I have some resources here that give some interesting information, but I was wondering if you if you paid attention to that at all. Yeah, you know, and at different resources I've looked at had... Um you know, a, a different comments. For example, in, in, in the Lutheran study Bible, it has this little note. It said, uh, uh, under where it says there is no compulsion. It says, uh, rule requiring guests to drink only when the king raised his goblet was, uh, set aside. So, so the, uh, the, the idea, uh, supposedly was that, um, the only time you could, uh, drink is when the king was drinking. And, uh, apparently, uh, according to, to that, uh, note, uh, the idea is that, well, the King set that aside. It's like, Hey, uh, you don't have to only drink when I drink, you just go ahead and have a good time and don't worry about that. It, it's almost like the, the King was, uh, loosening the rules, uh, and letting everybody just have a good time. <laughs> well, and not only that, but I also imagine that he probably thought there's no way they're going to keep up with me. <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, one of the, one of the commentators that I read said that, um, interestingly enough, uh, actually this was by the Greek historian Herodotus, Herodotus, uh, he noted that the Persians would often deliberate upon important matters or to make important decisions. They would deliberate while drunk and then as a, as a practice, and then they would of course reserve the final decision on the day after when they were sober so at times they would deliberate while sober and then reconsider their decision under the influence of alcohol uh probably I, not too wise yeah. yeah i don't know about the second one but i i just think that's an interesting note i mean first of all it gives us a little bit of context to perhaps this is about planning for the upcoming invasions against greece but but maybe also um i don't know i just think that's an interesting footnote to persian behavior but it, he also says, and other commentators make this point too, is that the Persians typically would not separate men from women in these parties. So the fact that he's having basically a male-only feast such that Queen uh, Vashti has to then give a feast for just the women in the palace um, that belong to him – um, I think is an interesting note too. Now, I don't know what to make of it, but I just think it's interesting. Maybe this is an intentional decision. 
you know, and, and it, it, you think of it, it, if it was normal for the women to gather with the men during such uh, a festivity and, and the King had uh, gone against that by separating the two, maybe, maybe he's already ticked off his wife by doing that. That's true. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so now when he, when he wants to bring her back in, uh, just for his own, you know, uh, ego, you know, she says, okay, that's enough. Okay. The, uh, this is the straw that broke the camel's back. And, you know, I find it interesting too, that this King's decision to bring his wife in and flaunt her, yeah, he, he makes this decision when he's had a little bit to drink. So that, that's another thing that says that, you know, maybe he's not thinking very clearly when he does this. <laughs> he's making some bad decisions while drunk. Uh, and, you know, it kind of it, it, it points forward a little bit, foreshadows maybe you might say, to some other bad decisions from his ilk. We think of Daniel chapter 5. Uh, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So, you know, Belshazzar is drinking from all the the holy utensils and a big party that he's having. Uh, you know, there seems to be a connection between kings and intoxication, making bad decisions, and perhaps there's a message for everybody about, you know, your inability to think straight when you're intoxicated. Right. And, you know, it's interesting Oh, it appears, especially when you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, apparently Solomon went through that phase too. You know, he, he tries this to see if he can find the meaning of life doing this, doing that. And, and apparently at one point he, he, he tries to uh, experiment with, with drinking. You know, uh, may, maybe this is the, this is the key to being happy in life and finding meaning. And so uh, apparently Solomon himself went th through a period like that, but then he, he comes out of it realizing, nope, that's not the answer. Uh, in fact, uh, there's places in Proverbs where it clearly teaches the danger of, of intoxication and where it can lead. So, you know, uh, the, the wider narrative of scripture itself suggests that, that what, what uh, the king is doing here uh, uh, in, at this time in history, uh, 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 making decisions while he is drunk, you know, he's just setting himself up for failure here. I think we can widen that too. I mean, Today, we have so many different ways a person might become intoxicated, especially with the movement to uh, legalize recreational marijuana. Um, but it's not just that opioid abuse and other types of things. Uh, and then, of course, harder drugs and that sort of stuff. Uh, and when I was in college I, and I, my first degree is in like criminal justice, you know, and I took a class and it's like drug theory and enforcement and that sort of thing. And, and the professor reminded us, he said, listen, no one takes drugs or drinks alcohol for that matter, because it makes them feel bad. Uh, and what that sort of struck home to me is that the temptation to want to escape or or to take these types of things to change your 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 mental mode is a, a very a very a strong temptation. You know, it's very strong. And when you're in those states, not only are you not thinking clearly, but you also think. You know, you're Superman. You think you're a genius. You think you're Einstein. You think everything's right. great. Um, and so I think, you know, we, we see that, as you said, in this sort of larger, this larger context that uh, some bad things are happening as we see, you know, the, this behavior. Um, and I, no, I, do I think this is a sedes doctrina for not getting intoxicated? No, of course not. You know, I'm just sort of trying to expand on some of the themes that come from this. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it's worth it's worth noting. Um, but the, yeah, but I just thought that was interesting. There is no compulsion. You're absolutely right. All the resources I found are saying, yeah, they didn't have to drink whenever he drank because I doubt they'd be able to keep up. <laughs> so we also have, um, you know, this not only this behavior is bad, but the way he treats his wife, uh, you know, we think of Proverbs to take pleasure in the wife of your youth. Now, right. this isn't to mock her, right? This is to lift her up. She resists these things. Um, but, you know, we also, I also wonder, I guess is my point. I also wonder if um, the, the queen is um, her refusal to obey her husband um, 
is something that they should have seriously been concerned about. Like, would were their concerns legitimate when they say, well, the women of the kingdom will look at this and then they will uh, now disobey their husbands? Or were those also sort of the statements of sort of drunken hysterics? Uh, that's what I, that's what I wonder. Like, why are they so concerned about that? Is that because well, they're they're they were patriarchal in nature? I don't know what is going on. Well, you know, I, I'm sure there were many intentions of the men that were less than godly, but at the same time, uh, you know, again, we're, we're not given all the details here, but, you know, uh, the response to bad behavior from men is not for women to behave equally badly. <laughs> and, you know, if, if the response to male chauvinism is hyperfeminism and uh, the idea that, well, we, 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 we don't need any men and, and, and we can have power and glory too. Well, uh, that just causes problems, you know? And, and so, you know, maybe the men here are legitimately concerned that, that, you know, uh, the, the women won't respect us anymore. Uh, they, they will. Uh, and it's interesting in Ephesians five, where Paul um, clearly teaches that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. He also says wives should respect their husbands. And, and so if, if the women respond in, in this context here in Esther, if, if the response of the women to the King's, you know, selfish behavior is to become equally mean and and rebellious and and lose all respect for men then then i would say that some of these uh uh advisors do have a legitimate concern you know uh but but in a sense uh they have no one to blame but themselves because uh they probably have not been the sort of men god wants them to be either right that's always an important point that we make when we speak about this subject is that um using new testament terms Yes, um, wives are to uh, respect and obey their husbands, but then, of course, that's predicated on the idea that husbands are loving their wives as Christ loves the church, which is to sacrifice for her, to lift her up, to uh, uh, to live for her. And uh, so that certainly makes uh, submission a lot easier, I would say. And then, uh, to me, this is just a good example that without Christ, without the wisdom that God gives us, you know, I, I think of what Paul says in, in uh, Romans, you know, do not repay evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, but here, what do we have? We, we have evil behavior of men, and the, the temptation of the women is just to push back, you know, to fight fire with fire. You know, it's like, oh, you're, you're going to be mean to us, but we're going to show disrespect to you. And uh, th that just never gets us anywhere. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, when 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 people draw lines in the sand and 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 become defensive and and it's like, okay, you, you hurt me now, I'm going to hurt you back. Uh, that just uh, is a downward spiral. That and the only solution to that is when Christ moves us to see our own sin first, to receive forgiveness from God through Christ, and then to forgive each other. And, and the temptation is always to see how the other person is in the wrong rather than viewing our own sin first and then uh, humbling ourselves. So uh, this is just a good example in Esther chapter one of how uh, sin leads people just to be constantly at odds with each other. So interesting enough, at the end, verse 22, it says that he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script and to every people in its own language. So I, I think this also points to the uh, the vastness of Xerxes or Ahasuerus's kingdom, that he is over provinces that don't even speak the same language, that don't even have the same uh, alphabets or alphabets, I wish you might be able to say. They don't even have the... So their ability to communicate with each other, I'm sure they're able to, of course, but when he says, let every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people, there also is, I guess in modern terms, a little a xenophobic there, right? Like, you know, you just need to stick with your own people. I think that's, you know, that's interesting, speaking in the language, and you stick to the language of your own people. I'm not sure what he's trying to get at there. What, what, what's the point of, of his, uh, his decree? Yeah, you know, and, and I think part of this is is just even though he wants to be in control of, of this whole empire, he also has to make sure uh, that that he he doesn't make enemies with people 
and uh, you know re- respects some of their own culture at the same time because uh, you you push too hard you you you, you do get pushback. So I, I think you know this is an example of where he he wants there to be a common. Uh, a common way of doing things in his empire, but at the same time, you know, respecting uh, the, 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 the language and the culture of some of these provinces uh, in, in the hopes of, of, of you know, uh, keeping friendship and not making enemies. Because the, the last thing he wants to do is be at constant war. Yes, and that makes a, a lot of sense. Uh, by the way, interestingly enough, that last uh, clause isn't included in the Septuagint. Um, it is in the Hebrew text, but the that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people isn't included. Uh, I don't know if there's significance to that. Uh, one commentator uh, speculates that speaking in the language of his own people could also mean that the husband is to decide which language is spoken in his household. Uh, as opposed to, you know, if he has a wife from a different language, then, you know, he's oh. the one who decides. Now, I these are these are two concepts that are completely new to me that I've never really studied before um, and, and really don't know the significance of. And maybe there's not, because really, when we get into the next chapter, it literally begins with, well, after these things. <laughs> you know? So it moves right, right on to uh, getting a new young, beautiful bride. And that's, of course, going to introduce our titular character, Esther. So, you know, we have about, you know, just a handful of minutes left in the episode, um, maybe 10 minutes, you know, maybe bring out whatever else you think would be interesting to take from this first chapter and maybe set the stage for what is to come. Yes, well, uh, again, here here we see we, we have a, a pagan king uh, his pagan empire, and he's already God has already used him uh, to be favorable to the Jews. Uh, it, it's through Xerxes or, or the, the name Ahasuerus, where, where God's people that had been previously you know exiled by Babylon now through 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 this Persian king, they're slowly but surely going back uh, to the Holy Land. Uh, but but it, now when we start going through the Book of Esther. Uh, and we see the the plot of Haman. Uh, it, it it would almost like okay, is God going back on His promise? You know how how can how, how can God fulfill His promise to have the exiles return if if, if Haman gets his way and and all the and there's genocide? You know uh, this reminds me uh, of almost where um, Abraham's faith was tested when God told him, Abraham, you know that son I gave you, Isaac. Yeah, I want you to give him back to me. And it's almost like, well, wait a minute here. It seems like God's just reneging on everything. But but what we learn, and, and this gets explicit in the book of Hebrews, is that basically Abraham refused to believe that God would lie to him. Abraham refused to believe that God would go back on his promise that through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. So according to the book of Hebrews, Abraham believed, well, if God has me sacrifice Isaac, I guess he'll just have to raise him from the dead then, because I refused to believe that God would lie to me. So I'm thinking that as the Jews, you know, as as later generations of Jews read through the book of Esther, I'm thinking how, you know, at, at first this seems to be really going badly for God's people, as though God has completely forsaken them. But then it's almost like God is using this to call them to trust him. It's like, hey, even though it appears as though I've forsaken you, uh, I will never do that. You have to remember, I will never break my promise. You have to trust that I'm going to work things out according to my will, even when it appears that circumstances completely call that into question. So I really think as we go through the, the plot development of the book of Esther, it's it's really calling us to ask, do we trust God to handle this? You brought up uh Abraham, and I do love that in Hebrews, you know, it, he just reasoned that if, well, if, if God's going to take him, I'm sure he can raise him from the dead. And what an act of faith, you know, when we think that things aren't going exactly as we think they should, or we think that God has departed from us, we often have to step back and realize that the, the scope of God and his view on history is, well, obviously it's infinitely wide and eternally wide, but it's so much wider than our own. We only see the little sliver of which we're a part, but God knows what he's doing. And so to have the faith of Abraham and others who said, I trust 
that God is going to do what he said, even when everything, including my senses and the world and the devil and all my friends, you know, even when everybody is telling me opposite, I would trust rather his word than anything else. And that's that's the faith of a Christian, and it's faith that can only be given by the Holy Spirit. This isn't something you can just conjure up in yourself. Right. You know, in fact, I find it very interesting that, uh, at least uh, thematically, that that uh, the very next book of the Bible after the book of Esther is is Job. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 and just as you know, our faith in God is tested when we read through Esther, uh, boy, oh boy, was Job's faith tested. It's like, in the same way, that there was a time in Job's life where it appeared that God had utterly forsaken him but finally he just says i know that my redeemer lives and then at the end i will stand upon the earth and in my flesh i will see god so again we, we have that eternal perspective uh of, of god's promise uh, even when things in this world don't seem to be uh, going according to plan if i can piggyback on your observation i would also say that you go from esther where god is seemingly absent to Job, where God is seemingly against him, you know, (laughs) conspiring against him. And both of those uh, views are incomplete and incorrect. You know, God is not absent in Esther, even though his name is not mentioned. God is not against Job, even though he's allowing these bad things to happen. And both of those things are messages for us, too. You don't sense God. Well, that's sort of a you problem because God is still active in there. And you feel like God is against you or conspiring against you or letting bad things happen to you. Well, again, that's a perceptive issue. God works all things to, for the good of those who love him. And, and that's what his word says, which is why we take a cue from Luther and saying, you know, we're going we're gonna to stake our life on God's word because that's what we can be sure of. Right. Well, any final messages for our listeners before we wrap up today? Well, uh, as you go ahead in the book of Esther, we're going to find out that, you know, even though God himself, his name is not mentioned, um, Mordecai does go on to talk about providence, you know, uh, behind the scenes of what seems to be chaotic history that doesn't make sense. There is this this ultimate plan. And uh, it's just a reminder, reminder to us that in life circumstances where things just don't seem to make sense, uh, we we have God's providence. We, 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 we have a plan that he's working through the events of history to bring about his gracious will for us that has been fulfilled in Christ. Amen. Many thanks to my guest this morning, the Reverend Thomas Eckstein, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Thank you, Pastor, for so, so much for being on the show. I look forward to when you get to come back. My privilege. Dear Saints, tune in tomorrow as we turn the page in Esther to chapter 2. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.